0: So as we continue to uh, work through the book of Isaiah together, uh, this morning we're going to look at uh, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19, through to chapter 10, verse 4. So Isaiah chapter 8, uh, verse 19, through chapter 10, verse 4. This is the word of God. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. All the people will know it. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say with pride and arrogance of heart. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. But the Lord has strengthened Rezin's foes against them and has spurred their enemies on. Arameans from the east and Philistines from the west have devoured Israel with open mouth. Yet, for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still Upraised. But the people have not returned to him who struck them, nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. So the Lord will cut off from Israel both head and tail, both palm branch and reed, in a single day. The elders and dignitaries are the head, the prophets who teach lies are the tail. Those who guide this people mislead them, and those who are guided are led astray. Therefore the Lord will take no pleasure in the young men, nor will he pity the fatherless and widows, for everyone is ungodly and wicked. Every mouth speaks folly. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Surely wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It sets the forest thickets ablaze so that it rolls upward in a column of smoke. By the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched, and the people will be fuel for the fire. They will not spare one another. On the right, they will devour, but still be hungry. On the left, they will eat, but not be satisfied. Each will feed on the flesh of their own offspring. Manasseh will feed on Ephraim, and Ephraim on Manasseh. Together, they will turn against Judah. Yet, for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall among the slain. Yet, for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Before we consider this passage together, uh, we're going to pray. But just before we do that, uh, I have a note from Matthew Durkee, which I will partly summarize and partly read. I'll just read it. My summary will take longer than reading it. Greetings from Burkina. It's a pleasant opening. We've been here for a week now, and the Lord has blessed us with two good wells already, and we're partly through a third. Trusting that the Lord will help us finish this one plus two others before returning Friday. We're thanking God for the strength and opportunities to be able to serve the Lord in these ways. We have been able to encourage struggling churches and projects on this trip. Many stories already, we still have a week to go. In light of the security conditions in Burkina, rather than being in the remote regions of the country, we made the decision to pull this team back close to the capital city and to finish work we had committed to around here. We had chauffeurs go and collect the equipment that was about 250 kilometers away in the west and brought it to us here to allow us to continue without putting ourselves or the team at risk. With regards to future teams, Since we can no longer be safely working in the regions where the unreached people groups of Burkina are, we have made the hard decision to cancel teams to Burkina for the foreseeable future, including our March team. That was going to be going from here. Since we are limited to the city and surrounding area, a region that is heavily evangelized already, this challenges us as our heart and mission is for those who have yet to hear the gospel. And so we are asking for prayer and wisdom to see where God is opening a door for us to serve as a ministry. Now, for those of you, many of you know a few mats over in Burkina, and we were going to have a group from this church go out uh, in March uh, as part of that team. Um, the team's been canceled because of the security uh, risks there. And a reminder again all of the Friends in Action work in terms of dr- drilling wells and all of the rest, yes, there is obviously a humanitarian component to it, but it is a way of providing water, uh, physical, need uh, really an arguments being made today, rightly, from the UN, that, that access to water, water security is a human right. So we're providing that, but it's to bring the gospel to people who need the gospel. And so if they can't bring the gospel to those who are unreached, then all of a sudden the, the reason for going is limited. Then he says this. Thank you for supporting us as we continue to walk alongside those sharing the gospel in dark places, that they may see and know the light, which is quite a, quite a helpful little comment uh, in terms of Isaiah chapter 9, uh, that those who are in the darkness will see the great light. Let's pray. Our Father, we would ask that uh, by your grace, you will enable us this morning to enter into the truth of your word, help us to understand it, help us to uh, bless your name by the attitude and posture we take towards it. Lord, help us to uh, please and honor you by our re- receptivity to the message of your holy word. Father, we pray in a special way for Matt and for those who work with him. We pray for those people in Burkina that he is ministering to. Uh, we ask that you would give them good success uh, in terms of well drilling but also, Lord, that you'll give them great spiritual success in being able to strengthen the faith communities and also that they'll see many people come to know you. Uh, They'll come to know Jesus Christ as the living water uh, who satisfies eternally. Lord, you are the God who knows. Uh, You know us thoroughly. You know our thoughts. You know our hearts. You know the things we come from. Uh, You know all the circumstances of our lives that bring us here today. We ask for a special touch of mercy and grace. We ask that you will bless us, help us to be righteous, help us to flourish, uh, help us to be a people who produce the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, bind us together as a church body ought to be. Make us united in genuine and deep, and true love that flows from you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what I want to do uh, is just very quickly, I want to look at verses, chapter 9, verses 8 through 10, 4. Then come back uh, to chapter 8, 19 and move forward through chapter 9. And there's a few reasons for wanting to do that. One of which is simply this. Uh, We have already seen a reasonable amount of judgment so far uh, in the book of Isaiah. If you've missed that theme, I'm not doing my job or you're not paying attention. So there's a reasonable amount of judgment thus far. I'd prefer today uh, not to end with that particular focus. Because, a bit of a spoiler alert, there's a lot more judgment to come. And, And so we're not really glossing it. Uh, there's going to be lots of opportunity to look at some of these sorts of themes. We've already seen these themes already. I do just want to mention a couple things, though, some main points. Number one, verses 8 through 10, the great sin, and we see this again and again and again in Isaiah, is the pride of the people. God hates pride. He detests it with all of his being. Partly, I suspect, is because it's it's almost definitionally an attitude of rebellion. It is impossible to consciously be aware of your finiteness and the fact that you are created by God, that you owe everything you are and have to Him, and to be arrogant. If everything you have received is by definition a gift of God's grace. Whether that's physical health or intelligence or social IQ, you know, business acumen, artistic ability, whatever it is, if, if everything, every breath that you have is a gift of God's grace, then arrogance is excluded. Paul makes this point to the Corinthians in terms of spiritual gifts. If every spiritual gift is actually a gift, But how can people be arrogant for what they've received? It's not generated from them. And so to take what God has given you and to turn it around as a reason for pride or self-aggrandizement is quite literally, by definition, to rebel against who God is. Now, not only that, we ought to be duly humble because God is infinite and transcendent and we are finite and limited. But how much more ought beings who are not only finite and limited, but deplorably evil. How much more cause is there for humility there? So it's our moral posture as well. It's our moral standing before God which should drive us to sort of a deep-rooted humility. This is why salvation is only by grace. It's undeserved. It's a gift. The reason it's by grace is because we can't earn it. The reason spiritual gifts are gifts of grace are because we don't deserve them. The reason that, that every blessing that we have is because of common grace is because we don't deserve them. Nothing in this universe is deserved. And so absolutely every positive blessing, everything that is a thing which causes any delight or joy or happiness at all, comes from the gracious hand of God. It is not deserved. And so what room is there for arrogance? What room is there to rise up as if we are self-made or can take credit for our being or existence or accomplishments? Everything we are, everything we've been enabled to do has been enabled by God in his grace, preserving us and maintaining us and keeping us safe in a variety of ways. The people, though, they have this sort of this this unconquerable optimism, this this sort of ridiculous view of human progress that people had you know prior to the first world war oh after the industrial revolution everything was just going to keep getting better and better and better and better you know the 20 the, the 20th century is going to be the the, the sort of the, the century the Christian century where, where Christianity in a social way was going to sweep through the world change all of the infrastructure everything was going to be wonderful then you had the first world war and and then Everything was going to be wonderful. Then you had the Second World War. And you look at history and and you say, people have have, always had this view. Well, things are falling down, but we'll just rebuild them. Everything will be better. The, The trees are ruined. We'll plant a better orchard. It doesn't always work that way. But the pride of human heart, we can conquer anything that comes along. God says you can't. This is just the beginning of my anger. This refrain, yet for all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upright. comes again and again and again and again in this section. So the Lord, in verses 11 through 17, is going to bring their enemies against them, and society will fail. We've already seen this earlier in Isaiah. Then 18 through 21, it's not only their enemies, it's not just external problems, it's internal problems. Society itself is engaging in sort of self-cannibalism. Ephraim and Manasseh, Manasseh and Ephraim, they're devouring each other, they're attacking each other, they're biting each other, they're harming each other. So it's not just external enemies come in, that does happen, because God's hand is still upraised, that's not the end. Internal quarrels continue on, self-cannibalization takes place, society is fragmenting civilly, socially, yet his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. And then chapter 10 verses one through four, again, not for the first time, not for the last time. In this book, the message revolves around social justice issues. Woe to those who make unjust laws. Again, law can be can uh, our legal systems can perpetuate structural injustice. Not every law is a good law. And there's one of the things that needs to be said today. Uh, although you would think that after, after some of the civil rights movement, uh, you would think we would know that not every law is a just law. You would think today in a country that, that refuses to have any law at all about life in the womb, you would think there would be a recognition that legal systems can perpetuate injustice and it's a Christian duty to prophetically speak out against unjust laws. God hates injustice, and sometimes injustice is enshrined in legal code to deprive the poor of their rights, to withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, preying on the widows, the fatherless, the most vulnerable, is who are you going to go to for help when, when, when I show up, God says? Now, we've seen this again and again already in Isaiah. We will see it again in the future. This message of unless you follow God in righteousness, unless you align even society, individual and societal structures with his truth, There will be implosion and disintegration societally and civilly. It is inevitable. No society can persist forever when it abandons God. As much as people say, oh, don't worry, it'll get better. Just throw a little bit more money into it, a little bit more education, a little bit more health care, a little bit more welfare, and everything will be fine. We'll build it better. The reality is a lasting civilization can only be built on the truth of God because God is an active God who continues to work in ways that pundits do not take into consideration because he transcends their categories. Too often, even as Christians, we've adopted uh, a practical atheism in terms of how we think the future will just unfold. And yet God is an intervening God in human history. Who is able to break in at any time to build up a nation or to dissemble or to dissemble a nation? Sometimes uh, an analogy has been used, I think, not, not a half bad one, where God is is God is at work in this world all through history, building up structure that He wants, and the nations that He uses are like the scaffolding that He uses to build His structure. And, and so often we think that the whole point is the scaffolding. We look at the nations and their historical epochs, and we fail to see what God himself is designing and building and engineering and architecting. What he's bringing to pass. But when you, when you construct the one wall, what do you do with the scaffolding? You don't leave it up. You take it down. You set up another scaffold over here, because now you're working on a different thing. God's always setting up and taking down. He exalts nations, and he brings them down. Chapter 8, verse 19. Why turn to the spiritual realm and not to God? That's the question here. When you have societal disintegration and chaos famine and strife and war, where do you turn? Well, in Isaiah, we've seen they turn to political alliances. We'll see that again. Here, they're turning to spiritists. They're turning to their ancestors. They're they're trying to get in touch with the dead. There's there's a recognition that there are uh, real spiritual forces in the world. So they're appealing to them for help, you know, through idolatrous worship, through through you know, contacting mediums and spiritists and all of the rest. Fascinatingly, today, and I don't have time to talk about this too much, but fascinatingly today, in society, there's a polarization where you have people who are very strictly materialist. That is, they're convinced that there's no spirit realm at all. You know, that everything can be sort of cashed out in terms of material interaction and epiphenomenon that, that comes out of material interaction. So there's no spirit, you know, there, 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 are, no, uh, there are no demons, no angels, there's no God, etc. And in this little pocket in our society, you, you have that group, but you also have people who are very open spiritually. You know, one of the fastest growing demographics in, in self-reporting is people who are Define themselves as spiritual but not religious. And you start trying to probe a little bit. What do you mean by spiritual? And, and, and usually, it's just some sort of sort of amorphous, ambiguous kind of feeling that there's something beyond what we can see. You know, uh, some sort of fate, karma, whatever. Or, or maybe maybe that you know there's a, there's a dryad in the tree or, or whatever. You know, there's some sort of spirituality. All around the world, of course, there are all kinds of people who have all kinds of beliefs in terms of spirit realm, etc. What Isaiah is saying here is this. Why? Why would you dabble and play in that realm and neglect God? Why would you go to small s spirits and neglect God? And if you're not neglecting God, what good are these going to do for you? God in his law has outlawed it. God in his law has banned it. God in his law has told you if you want to please him, stay away from this. Why are you going to it? God has given you his word. Consult God's instruction and testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. You match things against the word of God. That's always the standard. Uh, you, you always go back to what God has revealed in Scripture. You always go back to God's law. It's not a matter of, of subjective impression, and, and it's not even a matter of, of, of supernatural knowledge. I mean, The reality is, you know, there's obviously a ton of hucksterism around some of these things, uh, but there, there is, as needs to be said today, in our context, there actually is a spirit realm. And there are spirit beings, some of whom have great power some of whom have great knowledge. The reason that there is so much engagement around the world explicitly with the spirit realm is because the realm is real. And because there is real power to be found there. So in the same way, this sets up sort of a a parallel. When everything's falling apart, you can put your faith in other people which is what they're trying to do with political alliances or you can put your faith in other spirits, which is what they're doing in terms of their demonology or you can go to the creator. You can go to the truth. You can go to the one who's whole. You can go to the one who made you. You can go to the one who sustains. You can go to the one who, who's in covenant with you. You can go to the one who provides atonement. You can go to the one who forgives. You can go to the one who knows everything and is omnipotent. Those are your choices. And the people, the covenant people of God keep saying, Well, there's God, but but the spirit is down the road. Yeah, it's it's pretty chilling when you go there. Or, yeah, but, but but you know, Assyria has a lot of chariots. I can count them. Th- that's that's real power. I, I can count, you know, I can count the chariots of the Arameans. They don't have as many. Let let's 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 join Assyria. And if we combine Assyria, which is quantifiable, with sort of the, the thrills and, and power that we feel here in this realm, we'll be fine. But you can't create alliances with in the spirit realm. And alliances politically with God's enemies and maintain a proper relationship with God. And that's why God basically takes this posture. Look, if you want to be my enemy, I will be your enemy. If you want to persist in rebellion against me, if you want to reject me for these spirits, fine. Let them defend you against me. For all of this, my hand is still upraised. You want to forsake me for political alliances? Fine. But then when other political armies come in, my hand is still upraised. Let them defend you against me. It's your choice. And this is where the people, again, they're called again and again and again and again to put aside pride, to put aside illegitimate alliances, and just to have faith in God. It always comes down to that. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust God or are you going to trust people? Are you going to trust God or are you going to trust chariots? Are you going to trust God or are you going to trust demons? There's real power in chariots. There's real power in bombs. There's real power in guns. There's real power in money. That's why it's it's always an alluring temptation to trust those things. But you have to walk by faith, not by sight. That's the message again and again. They will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. It would be harder to depict that scene more starkly. Distress, darkness, fearful gloom, utter darkness. That's where you go. That's where you end up. You reject the light of the revelation and testimony and word of God, then you will be plunged into absolute and utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. The grammar here is interesting because it's it's describing something which will be in the future, but it's so certain it's grammatically put in the past tense. They've seen a great light. Now, having seen a great light, the people walking in darkness needs to be, your your backdrop is this, they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. This, in metaphor, is good news. This is gospel. Absolute, utter, abject darkness with no light at the end of the tunnel at all. And all of a sudden, illumination all of a sudden, a great light shines forth. All of a sudden, you can see clearly the light has dawned. It's totally a picture of absolute transformation from from total darkness to total light. From groping in blindness to being able to see. This is a complete and utter transformation. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. So, So now you're moving from judgment, 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 to light breaking in. And and it should go without saying, again, we need to say these things. These people who are living in absolute and utter darkness are not the source of the light. They are not the ones who have self-generated this. They are the ones who have plunged themselves into darkness. And so the fact that there is great light which is poured out is a gift of absolute, utter grace. It's from God. It is God who says, let there be light, and there is light. The light shines in the darkness, so the darkness is not overcoming. This is what God is doing. It's all God's work. What the people have done is the people have created the darkness in which they're living. And God says, enough. Oh, you broken, wretched people. You'll never see unless I shine my light into the darkness. And he does. He increases their joy. He gives them joy instead of gloom. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. This is like it's like rejoicing in day after night. It's like rejoicing in a plentiful harvest. And again, this is one of the things that, that's difficult for us, probably most of us, depending on you know where we grew up, I suppose, or just social awareness or travel. It can be very difficult for us to realize how much joy there comes in an agrarian society when it is harvest time. But even today, in many parts of the world, just one year, just one, without a good harvest, is literally the difference between life and death. Because no matter how many good harvests you've had, you never have enough and you don't have the storage systems to contain harvest for a long time. In the ancient world, where there is, is, is no famine aid relief of any kind, One bad harvest is the difference between life and death. One bad harvest is the difference between a thriving city and a city that collapses. The joy of an abundant, plentiful harvest. That's what this is like. Now remember, these are all metaphors. These are all spiritual metaphors. Day after night, harvest and not drought or famine, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. it's like victory after a terrible battle when you had no hope. You know, when the enemy is going to overwhelm you, and somehow you've you you've achieved victory. You think about the celebrations that took place across the globe. You know, at the end of of the Great World Wars, you know, then the Second World War, people filling the streets of London. Uh, to the point where, in certain places, you know, the reports are that, that people couldn't move is <laughs> jammed in so tightly. Rejoicing, the war was over. Uh, societies are shut down. People they have flooded out into the streets from their work, from their schools. Things things stopped because of the joy. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. This is the, the liberation of, of, of Holland. This is when the captives go free. This is when the, the gates of, of Auschwitz and Dachau are opened up. When, when, when Belsen is emptied. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood. All the accouterments and material of war, the garments soaked in blood, will be destined for burning. Will be fuel for the fires. You don't need them anymore. You don't. You. They're. They're not burning them because they're stained. They're burning them because they don't need them. This is. This is the victory that ends war for good. And oh, for that day, for, uh, I'm going to withhold some comments about that for a moment. But why? Why is there this absolute shattering change, this life-transforming change, why have we moved from darkness to light? Why are we rejoicing? Why is there an increase in joy? Why? Why is there uh, people rejoicing as at harvest? Why are people rejoicing uh, as if war has stopped? It's because of one reason. It's because a child has been born. So wait a minute. For causal reason. For to us a child is born. What kind of child brings all of this about? To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll support it. The truth of the matter is, um, there are some people who bear great responsibility. There's great responsibility on their shoulders. Sometimes you may feel like the weight of the world is on yours. And the reality is some people bear great weight on their shoulders and are crushed by it in the end. But this son will bear the government of the world on his shoulders, and he will support it forever. Well, what is this child? Well, who is this one who, who, whose birth is the dawning of great light into the land of darkness and death? Well, he's given some names. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Literally, he will be called a wonder of a counselor. Now, wonder, wonderful, is actually the closest thing in Hebrew to the word supernatural. It, it, it's it's in some context it's like um, a designation of God Himself. Why do you ask me my name? It is wonderful. It's the revelation of the Old Testament in Genesis. Here, the counselor is the wonder of a counselor. He's the supernatural counselor. He's the divine counselor. He, this isn't therapy. It's is not therapeutic counselor. It's advisor. It's wisdom. He gives you supernatural wisdom. He's your divine advisor. Well, how can a son, how can a child be a wonder? How can a son be supernatural? Creates a bit of a bit of a tension. But worse, for tension's sake, is that the child who is born is none, the, none less than the mighty God. How do you sort that? Well, it could be the mighty God, or actually you can even translate it as sort of God who is a hero, or a hero of a God. So you give strength and, and victory. But nonetheless, you have this supernatural counselor, this divine advisor, who is also the mighty God, yet a child, a son who is born. Now, What ratchets up the tension even more is that the Son who is born is literally the Father of Eternity. Now, how can a Son who is born be the Father of Eternity? How can a child who is given be the everlasting Father? How can he enter into space, time, through human birth and be everlasting? How can the Son be the Father? And he's the prince of peace. Shalom. Not just a cessation of war, as we saw in verse 5, but the one who makes everything right. The one who puts everything in harmony and proportion and balance. Now, at some level, we almost want to say How dare anyone suggest that there will be a son who is born, who is God? The whole thing is a first-rate blasphemy. Unless. Unless. One day. There's going to be a son who was born. Who was God. But you would never anticipate that. In the strictest monotheism that Isaiah is working from. You would never envision that. You would never make that up. It, it's it's ludicrous, and also likely to get you executed. But he says it. He says there's a son who's going to be born who's the everlasting father. There's going to be a child who's given who's the mighty God. There's a supernatural counselor, a prince of peace, who's going to be given as a son, who's going to be born into this world. 700 odd years before Christ, you say, No one ever, ever thought that. That's not part of of Israel's natural religion based on the Pentateuch. You don't expect this. Yet here's this bold prediction. A light is going to break into the darkness. It's going to be God who is a son who is born. With no well fleshed out view of the incarnation. But what you have here in nascent embryonic inquate form is to nature's Christology Son, that is human, God, everlasting Father, supernatural. Fully God, fully man. 700 years before Christ, this is the promise. Why is there joy? Why is there light? Why is there rejoicing? Why all of these metaphors? Because God in his grace, in sheer absolute grace, and don't miss the context, this section falls like a bombshell into this book. Just read chapter 8, verses 19, all the way through 10, 4 again. Read this section. This is not a section of, of overall rejoicing. It's a section of judgment and rebellion and sin and wickedness and darkness. And in the middle of it, God says, you know, despite all of these things, I will send my son. I will come into this world. You, you guys are just making a mess of this. I'm going to come and fix this. I'm going to reign on David's throne. I will establish it. I will uphold it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. And All, all, all you're doing is you're, you're, you're blinding your eyes so you can live in love and darkness. You love the darkness. It's a great condemnation. Oh, I'm going to give you eyes to see. Oh, my people. You will not come to me so i will come to you you don't you don't want me in your lives but i will break into yours because i love you too much to let you hate me forever because no matter how far you stray no matter how far you go you can never get outside of the sphere of my love. You turn to alternatives, but I will turn to you. I will give you myself. I will be your light. I will be your joy. I will be your peace. From that time on, and forever. Promises are cheap. How do we know? The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish. This. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This promise will be done. This promise of a son will be fulfilled. God is going to accomplish this. And he has. The son has been given. The child has been born. And we already see what it looks like to have peace with God through the cross and the resurrection. That's one of the things you don't get in this text. you get this in Isaiah 53. The reason that there is peace with God is because this child will take upon himself this sin of this world. For all of this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Because no amount of human chastisement can ever satisfy the wrath of God. For all of this, his hand is still upraised. For all of this, his anger is not satisfied. For all of this, his wrath is not turned away. And what you're not told here is that the hand of God is going to be upraised in judgment until it falls definitively on this child who is born. It is this son who finally, in his atoning death, brings peace. Because then, and only then, after all this, his anger is turned away. His hand is no longer upraised, because it fell with full power on this Son, who is the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of The zeal of the Lord Almighty has accomplished this. We have an opportunity to uh, respond and to uh, worship God. So I'll ask our musicians to come forward and to lead us in our closing song.